Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Revelation chapter 7. So last week, if you were here, we were in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, the lamb was given a scroll. Uh, He took the scroll out of the father's hand and it had seven seals. And we talked about that. And in chapter 6... Uh, seven of the or six of the seven seals are loosed by the lamb. He's he's re- removing each seal, and as he does, there's different things that are taking place. And we get to the end of chapter six, and he hasn't gotten all the seals off. And so you think, well, chapter seven, right now we're going to dig in. There's going to be a seal that's going to be removed, but that's not the case. In chapter seven, there's a pause or an interlude. Uh, prior to opening the seventh seal. What is this interlude? It's it's parenthetical information, if you will. Uh, There's information that's provided to us in chapter 7. And by the way, this this isn't a unique thing to chapter 7. This is repeated throughout Revelation as we continue further in the book. For example... We're talking here about the seals. There's going to be six trump or seven trumpets. Six trumpets are going to be uh, blasted, and then there's an interlude before blowing of the seventh trumpet. In that interlude, there's parenthetical information provided to us. There's also six bowl judgments, and then before the seventh bowl uh, is poured out, there's some parenthetical information provided for us. And so chapter 7 is really, that's what it is. It's parenthetical information. Uh, And it's not that this occurs necessarily chronologically between the sixth and seventh seals, but while these seals are being loosed, there's other things taking place, and there's other information that the Lord wants us to know about. And as I mentioned in chapter 6, it seemed like chapter 6 was kind of an overview of the entire seven-year period known as uh, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. We also know it as the Great Tribulation. It seemed to be an overview of that. And then we ended chapter 6. And at the end of chapter 6, verse 17, there's this, there's this statement made. It's, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand in the day of God's wrath? And the, the truth is, you know, none of us are worthy to stand, right? None of us are. None of us are able to stand in the day of God's wrath apart from his mercy. I like what Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? The truth is none of us could stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. It's It's in our faith in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what allows us to stand because the truth is none of us are worthy to stand. And so at the end of chapter 6, it's who is able to stand. In other words, who will be spared God's great wrath in the day of his wrath? And the first group that we know of is the church in heaven, which we looked at in chapters 4 and 5. But there's two more groups, and those are mentioned in chapter 7. This is the parenthetical information that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand this morning. You know, besides the church that's in heaven at the time of the Great Tribulation, there are two groups of individuals that come into play during the Great 
tribulation. So who are these people and what role do they play? And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on our foreheads. Now, something might have jumped out at you. Here these angels, these four angels are sent out to the four corners of the earth. You might be thinking, ha ha, that's it. We finally found uh, an error in the Bible. You know, we can, man, the Bible is actually teaching that the earth is flat. Well, you know what? Not too many centuries ago, that was the prevailing opinion. That was the scientific knowledge. Not too many centuries ago that the earth was flat. But multiple centuries before that, Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Way back, way back before, in the Bible, the earth was round. You know, today... We talk about the sunrise. Wasn't it a beautiful sunrise? I don't know. Was anybody up for the sunrise this morning? All right. We have one person there, an early bird. Um, I was awake, but I didn't catch the sunrise. But, you know, if you think about it, does the sun really rise? Yet we call it, right, sunrise and sunset. Well, we know for a fact that the sun doesn't rise or set. The earth is spinning and is revolving around the earth, and it gives the appearance of the earth, or of the, excuse me, of the sun rising and setting. In fact, maybe it's more correct to say the earth rise and earth set, but we don't say that, right? When I say sunrise and sunset, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, same with these, this scripture here. These four angels are sent out to the four corners of the earth, and what he's referring to is the four directions of the compass, north, east, uh, north, south, east, and west. In other words, the entire earth. The globe, it's a global event that's taking place. And so they are sent out to the four corners of the world to hold back the four winds from blowing on the earth. Now, symbolically in the Bible, wind is associated with God's judgment, okay, symbolically. But although the symbolism fits because this is speaking about judgment, I do believe personally that this is literal, that they are actually holding back the four winds. Now, uh, think about the impact of no wind on a global scale. Can you th- just just imagine, you know, I mean, our whole hydrological cycle, all that, it's, it's affected, wind is a factor, right? Wind is a factor in so many things. And so if you think about no wind blowing on the entire earth for a period of time, what would that be like? You know, when we get to Revelation chapter 11, there's going to be two witnesses. It's in another portion of parenthetical information. There's going to be these two witnesses in Jerusalem. And it says in Revelation chapter 11 that they're going to prophesy 1,260 days. In other words, three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And it says that these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. 
Now, I'm not saying it is, but it quite possibly could be simultaneous with these angels holding back this wind, that at that point, there's not going to be any rain on a global scale. So then John sees this other angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And this other angel cries out with a loud voice to the four angels, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this is the first group of the two groups of people in Revelation chapter 7 who will be able to stand in the day of God's wrath. And we find out who they are there in verse 3. They're called the servants of God. What else do we learn about them? Well, they're sealed. And right away, when we think of a seal, we think of the seven seals, right, in, on the scroll in chapter 6. What was the purpose of those seals on the scroll? It protected the contents of the scroll from being tampered with. In other words, not just anybody could loose those seals and open up the scroll. Only someone authorized Only someone worthy could remove those seals to open up the scroll. And like the scroll in chapter 6, these guys are protected from being tampered with. This is not the first time we see this in Scripture. Remember Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? The... the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers, they came to, to Pilate and they said, hey, this guy said he was going to rise from the dead in three days and we don't want somebody stealing his body, somebody going in there and tampering with the body and removing it and then saying, hey, he rose from the dead. And so Pilate says, okay, seal the tomb and set a guard. And so the tomb was sealed to prevent anyone from tampering with the body of Jesus. That didn't do too good, right? <laughs> that didn't work very well. So not only are they protected, well, excuse me, so these servants of God are sealed for protection during the great tribulation. There's an example in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 9 verse 4, and you don't need to turn there, but basically before judgment falls on Jerusalem there in Ezekiel 9 verse 4, the Lord instructs an angel, he says, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. In other words, they're grieving over the sin of what was taking place in Jerusalem. Those in that chapter, in Ezekiel 9 verse 4, they would be protected from God's judgment on Jerusalem. So there's, this, there's, we're not seeing a precedent being set here, I guess is what I'm saying. So not only are seals used for protection, but seals are also used for identification. We're going to revisit these 144, which you'll find out later, 144,000 servants of God in Revelation 14, verse 1. And it says that these having his father's name written on their foreheads. So it doesn't mean they have a seal and a name. It's probably the same thing. The seal is the name of the father. So they're identified with God the Father. Seals are also used for ownership. And you know, you and I, we've been sealed. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this, speaking of Jesus, in whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We have a seal, if you have a relationship with Jesus this morning. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's a guarantee of our inheritance. 
You know, when you put down a down payment on something, like say you're purchasing a car and you, you don't have all your money with you, but you put a down payment on the car, what are you doing? You're guaranteeing that you're going to return to complete the payment in full and take possession of the car, right? That's your guarantee. It's like, I'm, I'm buying this. I'm serious. I'm giving you money as a down payment for it. Now, in turn, that thing, that car, for example, if we're using an example of a car, it's considered yours. The dealer, if you put a down payment on it, the dealer can't now sell it to somebody else. That would be illegal because you technically own it now. Even though you haven't completed the transaction, you've put the down payment on, it's guaranteed that you're coming back. You're saying, I'm coming back. And so they can't sell it from under you. Well, that's the same thing here. You know, in a matter of time, you're going to take possession of your purchase. And this is what the Lord's speaking to us about, or what Paul's speaking to us about. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a guarantee. It's a down payment. And he's coming back to take possession, to to purchase us in full. Uh, And so that's what we're waiting for. I mean, what a blessing that is. But you know, the thing is, Satan always counterfeits what God does. And what we're going to see later on in Revelation is he as well is going to put a seal on people too. We're going to, that's known as the mark of the beast. And so Satan always tries to, tries to counterfeit everything that God does. So who is this group of people? Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now it's very interesting. People down through the ages have tried to say, hey, we're the 144,000, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses, cults like them, they've said, hey, we're the 144,000 that are spoken of here in Revelation chapter 7. But they had a problem because eventually they grew to have more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. So what do you do then? Well, they had a new revelation. Now there's certain ones that are really the worthy guys. They're the 144,000. They'll go to heaven. The other Jehovah Witnesses that are not quite as worthy, they're going to be on the earth. You know, and, and, and there's been other groups that have said that. And we all know here today that Calvary Chapel is 144,000, right? No, just kidding. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but people are down the It's like, why do they have to also say we're the 144,000? And yet people do that. Well, there's two main interpretations that I think are kind of sane here as far as who these, this group of people are. The first interpretation of this, of verse 4, is it's symbolic. That's the first interpretation. In other words, people say that this group, this number, 144,000, they're not actually Jewish men. They're symbolic of the church or of the, the, the believers down through the ages. Listen to this quote from a, a, a website that believes that it's symbolic. It says, it's not to be taken literally. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 being the number of completion for God's people, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and 1,000 being the generic number suggesting a great multitude. So 144,000 is a way of saying all of God's people under the Old and New Covenant. So that's, that's one interpretation. That interpretation that it's symbolic, it's typically, and I'm saying typically, I'm not going to say all the time, but it's typically used by people who are amillennial. Uh, they don't believe in a, in a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And by replacement theo- theologians. What's replacement theology? Replacement theology is the theology that says all the promises of Israel now belong to the church. 
the church is Israel. It's spiritual Israel. Um, I have a quote from a pastor, and I'm not going to give you his name, but if I did, you'd right away know who he's talking about. He's a very well-known pastor. But he delivered a sermon on Romans 11, 25 through 32, and this is some quotes that he makes concerning Israel. He says, The promises made to Abraham, including the promise of the land, will be inherited as an everlasting gift only by true spiritual Israel, not disobedient, unbelieving Israel. He says this, Jesus Christ has come into the world as the Jewish Messiah, and his own people rejected him and broke covenant with their God. Therefore, the secular state of Israel today may not claim a present divine right to the land, but they and we should seek a peaceful settlement, not based on present divine rights, but on international principles of justice, mercy, and practical feasibility. So in other words, what, what he's saying is that the nation state of, you know, Israel doesn't really, they don't, they don't belong in the land, or they don't deserve the land. They can't claim that because now it belongs to the church, to true, to spiritual Israel. And so, you know, it's not like now all of a sudden we're going to hate the Jews and we're going to, you know, we're going to attack them. You know, we need, because of we're Christians, you know, we need to have justice and mercy because that's what we're called to. And as long as it's practically feasible, allow Israel to stay in the land. And when you hear that, you go, wow. Uh, to me, I, I got angry when I read that. Because I don't know how you get around Romans 11, especially verses 25 to 29. Paul says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. That is, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Listen to this, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, right? The Jewish people, they're, they're, they are opposed. In fact, if you go to Israel now and you start sharing the gospel, you, you know, they don't like that. They don't like that. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And then verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling, what, God, what God's covenant with Israel is irrevocable with the nation of Israel. And so there's ramifications for, an inter, for a symbolic interpretation. In fact, the ramifications, they're huge ramifications. What are the ramifications? I don't, want to, I don't want you to misunderstand me here, but I really do believe that taking it as a symbolic can lead to anti-Semitism. And I'm not saying that those that, that they are anti-Semites, but re replacement theology, it has gone to the extreme uh, of being, becoming anti-Semitism, and it has also, it has been used by anti-Semites to, to come against Israel, the nation of Israel. So that's one of the ramifications, and I think that's a huge ramification. The second ramification is this. If this group of people comprise the church, that means then that the church is going to be there during the tribulation. They're going to, they're going to go through the entire tribulation. 
So there are quite big ramifications on saying this is a symbolic interpretation. What are the arguments against a symbolic interpretation? Well, first of all, the children of Israel, the term children of Israel is never used in the Bible to describe the church. I can't find it anywhere. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Now, it does distinguish true Israelites from those who have forsaken their spiritual heritage. You can read about that there in Romans 2, 28 and 29. But the terms Israel or children of Israel are never used for any group of people outside of those that are actually descended from Jacob. Not only that, but looking, and we'll get into the rest of chapter 7 here, it doesn't make sense for the children of Israel to mean anyone other than Jewish or including Jewish-born people when the second half of this chapter is going to contrast them with a group of people from all nations, languages, and times. It just doesn't make sense. Not only that, but if God wanted to use the term of Israel to symbolically mean the church, why would he go so far as to further delineate them by tribal affiliation? Why, why would he even mention tribes then? It's interesting. I'm reading a book. You know, we, we've got this uh, mentioned Adam's Road. They're coming uh, in July 18th. And uh, last time they were here, and I, I'm just now reading the book because just, I just thought, I want to read the book. But um, the guy who originally, out of the whole group, that he was a Mormon missionary, he was on a Mormon mission in Florida. He tried to convert this Baptist pastor to Mormonism, and he ended up becoming a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And at the end of his mission trip, they have to give this testimony in front of all the Mormons, you know, big honchos, and uh, he just shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, of course, then he was in trouble. His mom was a professor for 14 years at Brigham Young University. His dad was in the priesthood, and they are all now born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And... Uh, uh, why am I bringing this up again? Oh, I know why. Um, because in the book, so I'm reading the, her testimony. It's an awesome book so far. Um, her husband, you know, when they got into the Mormon church, their husband had this prophecy or some kind of statement made over him that he was of the bloodline of Ephraim. And she, in her book, she goes, it's funny, we did a DNA thing. There's no Jewish blood in this guy, you know, and yet he's of the, you know, but that's, why would Jesus or why would the Bible uh, mention these tribal affiliations if it's symbolic of the church. It, it just doesn't make sense, in my opinion. So that's the first interpretation of this, is that it's symbolic. The second major interpretation for those who, uh, 144,000, is literal. It's a literal 12,000 men from each tribe of Israel, making 144,000. Look at verse 7, or excuse me, verse 5. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, how are these guys going to know what tribe they came from? I mean, how, I mean, how, if you go, stopped a Jewish person on the street today, hey, what tribe are you from? Chances are they probably wouldn't know. Well, the fact is they may not necessarily know themselves what tribe they're from. But do you think God doesn't know? 
I mean, do you think God doesn't know what tribe or what person they descended from? He knows everything about you and I. Why wouldn't he know, you know, what tribes they came from? But then that raises another question. What about the, the lost tribes of Israel? And that's been a belief that's gone through, uh, you know, down through the ages about the lost ten tribes of Israel. And what that base is based on, you know, the ten northern tribes of Israel. You know, Israel had a civil war years ago, and they split, right? The ten northern tribes were, were one side, and then the southern two tribes were the other side. And the ten northern tribes of Israel, they went into Assyrian captivity, but there's no biblical record of what happened to those individuals after the captivity. There's no record of them coming back. Now, later on, the southern two tribes of Israel, known collectively as Judah, they went into Babylonian captivity after the Israel went into Assyrian captivity. But there is a biblical record of them returning to the land of Israel. So what about all those ten tribes? We don't hear anything about them. Well, there's some interesting scripture. And... Uh, I'm just going to give you them. You can write them down if you want and look at them later. I'll read them to you. But 2 Chronicles 11, verse 14. Now, this takes place before uh, the Assyrian captivity, okay? This is when the nation first split apart and Jeroboam was leading the 10 northern tribes and he's instituted uh, calf worship there in, in the tribal area of Dan in northern Israel uh, because he didn't want people going down to Jerusalem because, you know, their hearts would be torn and they would, you know, he didn't want to lose people. So he said, hey, worship up here. And, uh, and so as a result, there was all this idolatry introduced into Israel to the 10 northern tribes. But in 2 Chronicles 11, verse 14, when that happened, it says, For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. So the tribe of Levi went down to Judah, okay, or people, Levites, came down there. In verse 16 of that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 2 Chronicles, excuse me, 11, verse 16, after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of, of their father. So there were more that came down when the Levites went down. In 2 Chronicles Chapters 15, verse 9, this is when King Asa was king at the time, says, Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So we have all these tribes before the Assyrian captivity. There were people that their hearts were still towards the Lord. They didn't want to do idolatry. You know, they didn't want to worship idols. So they went down to Judah. This was before the Assyrian captivity. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, we read of Anna. And it says she was of the tribe of Asher, which is one of the ten northern tribes. In Hebrews 8, verse 8, it says, Because finding fault with him, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The covenant is with both. In James 1, verse 1, this is the last one I'm going to read to you. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So the whole ten lost tribes, it, it, it's just, it's not true. Besides, they may be lost, but God hasn't lost them. God knows where they're at. Now, what's interesting about, uh, there are some interesting things about this list, by the way, and I don't hope your eyes don't glaze over on this. It might, but uh, interesting to me anyways. 
Jacob had 12 sons, right? We know that. You can go back into Genesis and read that. Hence the 12 tribes of Israel. But however, there's actually 13 tribes. Because if you recall, when we went through the book of Genesis, Joseph had two sons, right? Ephraim and Manasseh when he was in Egypt. And when he was reunited with his father, Jacob, Jacob gave Joseph a double portion of the inheritance. He said, Ephraim and Manasseh are my sons with respect to the inheritance. They would be considered Jacob's sons and they would receive the inheritance along with Joseph's brothers. So that makes 13 tribes. There was no tribal allotment to the tribe of Joseph. It went to Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons. Now, the tribe of Levi, Levi, excuse me, the priestly tribe, they didn't receive any tribal land either. The Lord himself was to be their portion, and they were given cities. They were not giving, they were not giving portions of land. They were given cities in each tribal area. So when the 12 tribes are re- enumerated with respect to the land, Levi is not mentioned because of what I just mentioned. Joseph's not mentioned, but Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned. There's at least, and there might be more, but there's at least 18 tribal enumerations in the Old Testament. And one tribe is always or usually omitted. In other words, there's not, there's not a, th- a list of 13 tribes. It's always 12 tribes. Uh, sometimes the tribe that's being omitted is obvious, like the Levites. You know, they didn't li- really receive any tribal land. Or Joseph, because his sons Ephraim and Manasseh uh, were given tribal land. But you always end up with 12 in every single list. And their lists are arranged differently, uh, depending on the circumstances. Well, here, the tribe of Dan is omitted. Why is the tribe of Dan omitted? They were the first tribe to go into idolatry and to lead the rest of the ten tribes of the, of the northern kingdom into idolatry. In fact, ancient Jewish scholars believe a false Messiah would arise from the tribe of Dan. In the New Testament, we think of that as, as the, the Antichrist. There are people that believe that the Antichrist might come from the tribe of Dan. Sorry about that, Dan. But uh, he's not the Antichrist, by the way. <laughs> I hope not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Another tribe that's mentioned, but it's very fascinating in a slighted way, is Ephraim. You might say, well, I don't see them in the list there. They're actually in the list, but in a kind of a backwards way. See, normally the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, they're in the same enumeration to replace Joseph. In other words, when Joseph is not in the list, Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, are in the list. Well, look at verse 6. You'll see that the tribe of Manasseh is listed there, and you would expect to see the tribe of Ephraim, but they're not named there. Joseph's named there. So they're there, but instead of calling them by name Ephraim, They're just Joseph. Fascinating. Why is that the case? Well, we don't really know for sure why these ones are omitted. But Ephraim was the most influential of the tribes of the northern kingdom and very large. In fact, the ten northern tribes came to be known as Ephraim, just like the southern tribes were known as Judah. And in Hosea uh, 4 verse 17, it says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. You see, because like Dan... They, too, influenced the children of Israel to adopt idolatry. Now, is that why they're not on the list? I don't know. But you know what's interesting? 
We serve a gracious God because in Ezekiel chapter 48, Ezekiel chapter 48 gives us the list of the tribes that will be going into the millennium, that are given property in the millennium. Dan is the first tribe mentioned, and Ephraim's mentioned in that tribe, as, in that listing as well. Because God's a gracious God. I, I, I love that. What else do we know about these tribes? Well, let's look at verse, well, actually, it's you, you can turn there. Revelation 14, verse 4. Again, that's another portion that talks about these these 144,000. It says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Okay, so now picture this in your mind. 12,000 virgin men from each tribe, 144,000 virgin Jewish men. One of the people that believes that I was looking at that says, you know, this is symbolic, they says, well, it just doesn't make sense. Could you really expect 144,000 men, 12,000 from each man to be, to literally be, be virgins. I mean, it's just, you know, can you really expect that? My answer is why not? Why not? Listen, put your thinking cap on for a minute. Let's put all this into perspective. The rapture's already occurred, right? Chapters four and five, the rapture's already occurred. The Bible says no man knows the day of the hour. We don't, you and I today, the rapture could happen today. I, could, I may not even have to finish this, this chat. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Just we'd be up there in heaven. You could just get it from Jesus himself. You wouldn't have to listen to me anymore. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture. But once the rapture takes place, those who are on the earth, they're going to know the day. They may not know the hour, but they're going to know the day because it'll be exactly seven years to the day when the judgment will come. So if you can picture this, the rapture occurs. Now all of a sudden you've got these Jewish men, and we had a Jewish individual here. I, I, I like to bring him up in scriptures because he always listens to these messages. But we had this Jewish guy. He's a really neat guy. Um, anyways, I love him. Uh, he came to faith in the Lord, and it was fascinating to see him devouring the New Testament. He started sharing stuff with me, and I'm like, I can't say his name. I said, I said Joe, to protect his name. I said, Joe... <laughs> How is it you know? I mean, you, it sounds like you just went to Bible college. And you see, the thing is, it was all in there from all his time going to synagogue. And when he finally, the scales were removed from his eyes and he saw Jesus the Messiah, it all made sense. It clicked. And he was just devouring scripture. Well, can you imagine, after the rapture, these 12,000 young Jewish men, they all of a sudden recognize, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. They go to their Bibles, now all of a sudden the New Testament. They're, they're reading the New Testament. They're devouring scriptures. They're going to come across Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, verse 19, speaking about the last days where he says, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Speaking about the tribulation. Why would they want to get married when they know there's going to be nothing but heartache and nothing but trouble? Not only that, They'll be reading Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 7, 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. So can you imagine these guys, they, they know the day when Christ is going to return. Why would they want to even bother getting married? The time is so short, and it's so difficult right now. They're just going to be on fire for Jesus. What else do we know about them? Verse 4 of Revelation 14 says, These were redeemed among men, from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. 
Now, I don't believe personally that there's only going to be 144,000 Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. But this, this group, they're going to be in God's witness protection program. That's it. They're, they're, they're in God's witness protection program. Uh, they've been known, they've been described as 144,000 young Jewish Billy Grahams sharing the love of Jesus with anybody. And I don't think their fruits is just going to be Jewish people. I think there's going to be a worldwide harvest as a result of their testimony. They are the first fruits, the Bible says. What is a first fruit? Well, the first fruit was the first harvest of the season. And when you received it, it was anticipation of a much greater harvest to follow. And that may be why this second large group of individuals that we're going to talk about next in chapter 7 is even mentioned. I think they're a harvest from these first fruits. So let's look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the, and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So what we discover about this group of people that's so too numerous to count, they've got white robes, which speaks of Christ's righteousness. They're, they have palm branches, which in the Bible indicates their triumph. And John notices something. He notices that they are from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That's significant because I think it tells us two things. The first thing this tells us, we're not going to be cookie cutter Christians in heaven. We're not all going to look the same with our harps and our little wings. You know what I mean? You get these pictures that people have of what it's going to be like in heaven. Listen, I honestly believe there's going to be diversity in heaven. The bride of Christ is not going to be like a Stepford wife. You know, if you, you know what I'm talking about. We're not going to be assimilated into being the Borg. You know, we're not going to, we're not all going to look the same and talk and be the, exactly the same. I think there's going to be individuality in heaven. But isn't that funny? Here on earth, we want everybody to look like us, right? We do. We want everybody to worship like us. You know, they need to worship. The, you know, we've got these opinions about what worship should be, and everyone should, should believe what we believe about worship and, and do what we do. You know, everybody should do that. Or, or everybody should dress, you know, like we dress, the way Christians are supposed to dress. Or, or the way we conduct our worship. So, you know, everybody should be like us. Well, guess what? Go to another country and visit believers in another country, especially like a third world country or some other. You'll be blown away. They're so, they're, they, they worship totally different. I remember when we went down to the Dominican Republic, and it's like loud music, you know, it's like, your ears are like, you know, and it's just, but that's the way they worship, you know, and they're, they're very much on fire on their worship. They love worshiping and stuff, but it's definitely loud. I mean, you bring your earplugs if you go down to those places like that. Um, but it's different. There's diversity. And yet, in that diversity, there's one thing, in, actually there's a couple things in common. They're all gathered around the throne. They're all gathered around the throne and they're all worshiping the Lamb. 
And so, you know, sometimes you think in heaven, we're all going to look like in heaven. No, I think we're going to, I think the worship's going to be different. I think, I think it's, gonna, it's just going to be amazing how different things are going to be when you, you and I get up to heaven. And their worship is contagious because look at the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures. They all join in worship once this whole multitude starts worshiping. They start worshiping too. So the first thing this tells us, I think, is that there's going to be diversity in heaven. The second thing this tells us, John recognized different nationalities of people. You might say, well, it's kind of the same thing. Well, my point is here, I honestly believe we're going to be recognizable in heaven. I firmly believe that when you and I get to heaven, we're going to recognize our saved loved ones that have have gone on before us. I firmly believe that, that we're going we're gonna to recognize them. How? I don't know. Because we'll have glorified bodies? I don't know. But listen, on the Mount of Transfiguration, how did Peter know that it was Moses and Elijah that came down to, to, to talk with Jesus there on the mountain? That, you know, the Ten Commandments had not been made yet. So he didn't know that Moses looked like Charlton Heston, Right? There were no home movies of Moses and Elijah. They didn't wear name tags. Hi, my name is Moses. Hello, I'm Elijah. You know, then how did, how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. Somehow, supernaturally, they did. How are we going to recognize people in heaven? I don't know. I'm not there. I can't tell you. But I think, I firmly believe, somehow, supernaturally, we are going to recognize our family members, our loved ones in heaven now, I do have some bad news for you guys that are students. You might have thought, you know, when I get to heaven, I don't have to deal with this. But guess what? There's going to be a pop quiz in heaven. <laughs> John had a pop quiz. Look at that. Verse 13. Then one of the angels answered, saying to me, here's the question. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? Verse 14. And I said to him, sir, you know. So next time you guys are in getting a pop quiz, you don't know the answer, and they say, what's this and this? You go, well, you know. <laughs> Try it. It might work. I don't know. Verse, the second half of verse 14. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I really believe, based on this, that there are going to be multitudes of people coming to faith in Christ Jesus during the tribulation. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit was taken out. And so we talked about that last week. If, you, if you're interested, you could listen to it in chapter 6, a teaching in chapter 6. But I do believe that there'll be people based on this coming to faith during the Great Tribulation, but they're going to be martyred for their faith. They're going to be killed for their faith. But even, you know, you think of the, the persecution that's going on in the world today. And I've mentioned China right now. And if you saw that movie, Tortured for Christ, you know, the, how bad it was in communist uh, during the Iron Curtain uh, era. And think of North Korea right now, how bad it is there for believers. Think of North Korea on steroids on a global scale. And you probably even haven't touched on how bad it's going to be during the tribulation. And yet there's going to be a great innumerable harvest of souls occurring during that time. Amazing. Here's another thing that's kind of interesting. You notice they don't sing about their martyrdom? See, it's not their martyrdom that's going to make them worthy. You might think, you know, if I, if, if, if like some guy came in here and said, I, okay, all you that are true born-again Christians, stay here. Anyone that's, you're just kind of on the fringe, you can leave. 
Hopefully none of us would leave, right? We'd all say, yeah, I'm abort and then say, well, I'm gonna, we're going to execute all of you. You know, we'd probably cry a little bit, maybe pray, you know, say goodbye to your loved ones or whatever like that. If we were shot and killed and we went up to heaven, that wouldn't make us worthy. Even if we gave our life for Jesus Christ, it wouldn't make us worthy. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us worthy. It's only his sacrifice for our sins that make us worthy. You know, the Bible says the cross is foolishness to the world. I mean, think of it. How can washing something in blood make it white? Yet that's exactly what happens. And I think of it in my own life. How can I stand justified before a holy God? I can't. Only by faith and grace. In Jesus Christ's grace, you know, through faith. That's the only way I can stand. The only way any of us can stand. Verse 15 Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is just a side note. But I think verse 15 must be describing the millennium and not the new heaven and the new earth. Why do I say that? Because it says they serve him day and night. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, it says there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And it says that they serve in the temple. And if you were here when we went through Ezekiel, our study through Ezekiel, we know that there will be a temple during the millennium from the book of Ezekiel. But look what it says in Revelation 21, verse 22, speaking of new Jerusalem, new, new heaven, new earth. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So I don't know, just a side thing. I, I just looked at it and go, well, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I think it's speaking of the millennium here. But he says, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is the last thing I'm going to leave with you this morning. You know, in this life, we're not guaranteed to be free from suffering. And you and I, we, we know that, right? We're not guaranteed to be free from suffering. We may still hunger, and thirst. We may still endure the heat and fire of trials and distress, and we certainly may still shed tears in this life. But the good news is that that is going to end when you and I are standing before the Lord God in heaven. There's a time coming when that suffering and pain and tears of this life will be no more. But the reality is we're still going through it. But the thing that, that you and I are blessed with is that God's promised to never leave us nor forsake us in the midst of our suffering. And he gives us his grace to endure those things. So maybe this morning you're suffering through a difficult time. Uh, I, I just, I hope to encourage you that, uh, not saying, well, stick it out because, you know, you're going to be stuck with it. But I want to encourage you, the Lord God knows what you're going through. One of the things that was, it was probably, I, I don't want to give away the movie that Tortured for Christ, but one of the, probably the hardest thing to, to watch in that movie was there was a pastor, one of the Christians was in the prison along with Richard Wormbrand, and uh, they were trying to get him to confess who else was Christians. And, uh, you know, they wanted the names of people that attended his church or whatever, and he wouldn't tell them. And so they, were, they had him in chains, and they were, they were torturing him. He wouldn't tell them, and then they brought his 
teenage son in, and they they chained him up next to him, and they started beating on the son, and they're like, and then they finally the, the father's like, I, I give up, I give up, I, I'll tell you, I'll give you the names, and the son said, don't don't do it, dad, don't be a traitor, just give him Jesus, just tell him Jesus, you know, and stuff, and he ended up being the son was beaten to death. This is a true story. It's not a drama. This is a true story. The son was beaten to death before the eyes of the father. I think of Christians around the world that are suffering tremendously right now. And some people will say, well, you know, Christians, we're not, you know, God hasn't, we're not supposed to suffer. You know, everything's supposed to be rosy when you come to faith in Christ. I think that's just a Western <laughs> misconception. I think we're in a bubble here in the West, in our culture. You go anywhere else in the world and people are really suffering for their faith. But the, but the blessing is there will be an end to that someday. Praise God. Why don't you stand and let's go, Lord, and pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And uh, thank you for the promise of eternal life. Lord, thank you that you uh, have counted us worthy, not because of us, but because of your blood shed for us, Lord. Your sacrifice made on our behalf that we are able to stand, that, Lord, we will be spared your wrath in those days. We thank you for that, Lord God. And Lord, we do pray, I pray, Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for the peace of Israel. But we pray that the Jewish nation, the people there would come to faith in you, Lord, before this comes, before this happens, Lord, that, that many men and women and children would come to faith in you. Lord, we also just lift up our brothers and sisters that are persecuted, that are shedding tears, that are suffering, Lord, this morning. We ask your peace, your 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 patience your your love lord just to flood them even now as we're praying lord god and lord we thank you that we have the promise that there is a day coming when all those things that we are suffering right now lord that that they too shall pass when we're in your presence so we thank you this morning for your word in jesus name